Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff, from how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country, tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host, and I'm part of the team here at Halliday, and this is By The Glass. Another day, another episode. And today we are in for an absolute cracker. Uh, today I am joined by Erin Larkin. Now, to give you a bit of background, Erin is an independent wine writer, judge, and presenter based in Perth, WA. But most importantly, Erin is part of the tasting team at Halliday. So, effectively, She's a full-time drinker, which means she's the perfect person to teach us how to taste wine, which is today's topic of conversation. Erin, thank you for joining us. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Erin, now you're not in WA today. Oh, I wish I was. I mean, I love Western Australia. It is my home and my favourite place, um, but I am in beautiful South Australia because Tomorrow is the media release of um, the 2017 Grange and the 70th anniversary of Grange. So there'll be a celebratory dinner tomorrow night and I'm very excited to be here. Oh, God, and I'm stuck here in bloody Melbourne and that sounds delightful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Erin... Uh, we're going to kick it off because I'll just be too jealous if we talk about all the delicious wine you'll be drinking for the next two days. Um, Erin, you came from a background in fashion and now you're in wine. How did that happen? Uh, They're both very cool, very pleasurable industries. Um, And actually I fell into wine kind of by mistake. I mean, I always drank wine, obviously, as most of us do. Mm -hmm. Um, I did... Fashion and art were always going to be my path. I mean, I I did most of one and all of the second um, of two degrees, a visual art degree first and a fashion and textiles degree second. Uh, And I got a job at a bottle shop pretty much just to cover my rent um, because the fashion industry is about as well paid as the wine industry is. (laughs) Um, And it sort of... um, it sort of was an avalanche of understanding for me and I, and I, I started by tasting sort of every single day um, and then it ended up being every night after work as well, going to tastings, any tastings that I could be a part of uh, until I realised that I didn't have any time to have any clients in fashion anymore and I was in, I was in wine. Here I was uh, and it was a really fantastic and fortuitous move for me. I'm still delighted to be here. <laughs> And and so I suppose that's the perfect lead-in, Erin, because um, I don't know when marks your 12-month anniversary at Halliday, but you've done one full tasting season. And um, so what I want to – look, actually, let's just cut to the chase. In one tasting season, how many wines do you knock back? A lot. Um, (laughs) 
I started late um, last season. So we were sent samples from about uh, September, October, but I didn't start until the end of November because I was uh, judging in Western Australia at shows in WA. Um, so that was a really big ramp up into the season because that's a really heavy thing to do before any sort of work anyway. There was a lot of wines in that. But um, I probably tasted, for the companion alone, um, just over 1,480 wines. That doesn't actually include uh, the 26 dozen that I was left with at the end, which were sent as either double bottles or the wines had already been previously tasted. So there was an awful lot of wine at my house over the last um, summer. <laughs> you must have a rather impressive cellar. Uh, wine room. Oh. Wine room. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I suppose for people at home, right? So you've—I mm. mean, that's a—that's a—that's a quite a few bottles there, right? Like, so how does a typical day look for you as a professional wine taster? Uh-huh. Uh, discipline and rigor, and I know that sounds a bit weird, <laughs> but that is actually the case. Um, so I would sort of taste between 24 and 48 wines a day. I had worked out that 36 was the sweet spot if I could. Um, so I look at them in brackets of 12 and I go from there. I literally wake up, have a coffee, get the house sorted. I've got two young boys and a husband, so I get everyone sort of off to daycare and school and all that and, and work. Um, and go into the wine room, close the door, set up the first bracket and off I go. And I'd taste until about um, usually about three or four o'clock. Uh, there's quite a bit of pack down, obviously. I have to get rid of all the bottles, um, clean all the glasses. So it does take me until about 5, 5.30 to sort of close off the day. And I do that four days a week um, between November and March. Wow. And yeah. It, 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 Look, these questions will just come as they as they come. But does that take the sparkle off wine, like drinking that much? Do you know, do you know it does? Um, and something really magnificent happened to me at the beginning of COVID, and that was I fell um, into this little group of guys, and we are not a wine group. I'm using my fingers when I say that. We're not a wine group, but <laughs> in, in reality we are. Um, and the reason why I love these guys is because they're not in wine and they just love it. They buy it, they drink it, they read widely, um, and they kind of reinvigorated my love for something that I was already in love with but was becoming tired of. Um, so, yeah, wine became a job, but also um, people like those guys in that group and other people in the industry really remind me to stay curious and, and kind of enthusiastic, which is why I'm here in the first place anyway. Um, but, yeah, it does take a bit of work to remember that it's a thing of beauty and it's delicious and it should make you smile. Absolutely, as it's making us smile right now as we right. share a glass over Zoom. So, what are you drinking? <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I'm drinking a, a, a Semillon um, today. Yeah. Um, yes, good. and what are you drinking? Um, I've got a bottle of Franklin Estate Poison Hill Riesling from 2020. It's from Franklin River in the Great Southern in Western Australia, and I'm a proud Great Southern Riesling lover. Um, so I brought it here to Adelaide with me from Perth for this. Fabulous. Um, so back to your life as a taster, because mm. I feel like mm. that we, you know, I haven't even touched on that yet. So I've always wanted to know, um, so obviously you have up to, you know, 40-something wines a day. Um, are wines that you – so what I want to know is the order in which you taste the wines – 
Um, and then also other wines you taste at the beginning of the day in a more advantageous position than those you taste at the end of a day? Actually, um, no, because you have to be very careful of the very first wines you have in either a tasting or a judging session or whatever, because it's, I call it the curse of the first. It's either going to be very welcome and therefore highly scored or a bit jarring after breakfast and coffee and therefore scored lower. So I, um, I tend to jump into the middle, try a couple of wines, get my palate ready and, and start at the beginning again. So that's the first thing. I mean, that first wine is always a problem and I, I'm conscious of that. But capping the wines that I taste every day to 36 or 48 is really a very, very manageable um, number of wines to look at. So I'm rarely fatigued. Sometimes if a, if a, um, a bracket is, is difficult to taste, say fortifieds, looking at 30 fortifieds in a day is extremely difficult and I wouldn't recommend that, um, so I don't do that. <laughs> I, always, I always sort of split those out and, and spread them out over the season because I just think it's crazy to have that much sugar in your mouth um, all day. It can mask a lot of the things that I look for in wine, so I try not to. But um. But, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, fatigue is a really important thing to take into account. Uh, and some days you do just have to pull the pin because it's not fair to taste any more of the wines. So Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I know that in conversation with, with you previously, you talk about, um, which is feels unusual to me as a wine drinker, but you yeah. actually start with your bigger reds. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I start red. I start on the biggest red that I've got and I work my way down to the fine whites. And I do that because judging red wine with tannin and all of the big things in it uh, can be quite sort of fatiguing on the palate. So when um, I'd like to get that done in the morning when I'm energetic and ready. Uh, and then by the time um, those parts of my mouth are tired, by the end of the day, I'm tasting things like Riesling or Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and and I'm and I'm much more able to judge those accurately at the end of the day. So it's um that's something I've worked out. Not everyone is the same, but I, I like to start with red and finish with white. Yeah, I find that so interesting. And I mean, obviously, we're going to come to all of that. And you've used the words acids and tannins, and that's something I want to touch on um, as we progress. But um and 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 so uh, the other question I want to know is um, two things. Does your dentist love you? Because what I want to know is if you're swishing around red wine all day, every day, you know, how are your teeth? So I don't know what makes a dentist love you or hate you. I think <laughs> they hate you if you never turn up and love you if you come all the time. So maybe my dentist loves me. Um, but uh, I use a really super high fluoride toothpaste um, and I swear by it. You buy it at the chemist behind the counter. It has changed my outlook completely. Um, I'm very conscious not to brush my teeth in the morning before a tasting, and I'm very conscious of waiting a couple of hours after tasting to brush my teeth again. In terms of staining, um, I get my teeth cleaned by the dentist every six months. Yeah. He always removes staining. That's just part of the job. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people, um, w when I watch them taste, they swish the wine around in their mouth like mouthwash. And I'm conscious that when you do that, it goes on the outside of your teeth and they stain on the outside. So I try not to do that and I try and keep it on the inside of my mouth because I haven't found that there's any great improvement in the um, assessment of the wine anyway. 
So I'd rather keep my teeth looking fabulous. Sort of okay. Fabulous. Sort of okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so speaking of the, the, the other thing I wanted to ask was um, mm. as far as around your palate's concerned, it, are you constantly working on refining your palate? It's an interesting one actually because the more you taste, it's like anything, right? If you're a cyclist or a weightlifter or an artist or whatever it is that you do, you practice, you practice and you practice and you practice and the more you do it, the better you get. So the more I taste, the better I am at understanding what it is that I'm tasting. And the best way for me to do that is to try stuff that's out of my comfort zone often um, because what I get through the companion tastings is really handy and that is rigour. So I will look at, you know, 150 Sauvignon Blancs. I've got a really good handle on what Sauvignon Blanc from Western Australia looks like. But do I know what it looks like from the Loire Valley? In France, you know, it's a different kettle of fish, mm. but it's really important for me to understand what they look like so that when I taste the wines from Western Australia, I have a better understanding of the scope of what it is that I'm, I'm looking at. That's what wine is. It's about understanding, you know, and the more you taste and the more you understand, the more you can enjoy it, I, I think. But also there must be, like, because wine, like, We've been doing plenty of articles at Halliday around the stylistic, the stylistic evolution of a lot of wines, right? Like wines are constantly um, evolving and styles around wines are constantly evolving right around the world, not just in Australia. So, just like fashion, by the way. Say that again, sorry? That's just like fashion. Of course. It's all the same. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so do you – like how – Okay, so here's a question. Do yeah. you just keep yourself across what's happening in Australia or are you also keeping across what's happening abroad as well? I can't help myself. I should, I mean, we're judging in the context of the Wine Companion, we are writing about Australian wines. So it is responsible and thorough of me to focus on Australian wines. However, I believe, and my point earlier is the same, I believe that you have to try a lot of things because context is everything. I can't say to you as a drinker that you should try this Margaret River Chardonnay. I think it's the best in Western Australia. I also believe it's one of the best in the country. And because Australia makes pretty good Chardonnay, I reckon it's up there with some of the best in the world. You can't say that without context because you sound like a schmuck. You need to know what the best <laughs> in the world tastes like. It's true. You need to know what the best tastes like so that you can make a qualified statement. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. This is all and so also, applying it, you know. And also, you'd be depriving yourself of champagne, which would be a bloody disaster. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, that that look that that actually raises the question: What mm. is your favourite variety mm. or wine? I should say, um, um, white wine. Mm. Did you say white or anything? Well, white? anything, anything. Look, I'm terrible at this question. Um, I want to drink three things all the time, Chardonnay, Nebbiolo, and Champagne. Good girl. And I like Chardonnay from many, many, many different places, both in Australia and worldwide. Champagne obviously only comes from Champagne in France, and the wines from that region are amongst the most exciting in the world, in my opinion. Uh, and Nebbiolo has got really one one 
sole home in the world, which is in Piedmont in the north of Italy in, in Barolo, Barbaresco and around. Um, while we make very good Nebbiolo in Australia and there are great examples worldwide, um, B- Piedmont, Barolo, P- Barbaresco, whatever, give it to me. <laughs> yes, so I can't add- answer your question succinctly I, I wondered if you were looking for a, this is my favorite wine Sorry. <laughs> no 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 I, I look to be honest I'm just happy that you said champagne but um mm. obviously yeah. Chardonnay would be a close second for me if I could live my life in bubbles I would um but anyway let's move on because today is about a little bit of learning right yeah so um you are going to be our pro on tasting right? So what I wanted to ask is, um, so when it comes to wine tasting, I have friends that often ask, um, are they supposed to swirl the wine? Are they smell the wine, swish the wine in the ra- around in their mouth? Um, they're nervous. They don't know what they're doing. Can you, can you, can you tell us, can you tell yes. us how to taste wine? Can I tell you one thing first? Pick the wine up, glass up by the stem. Oh, I don't have a stem. Sorry. <gasps> Last and you're too cool for that fine to get up by the bulb. But, you know, if you've got a stem, use the stem. That's what it's for. And the reason why we do that is so that you don't heat the wine up in your hand because if you're standing around drinking and chatting and you've got a wine glass in your hand, it will warm up. That's the first thing. Secondly, you've got to think why you want to drink wine. For me, I've got two reasons. One is a professional reason, so I need to, I need to assess it and, and ultimately rank it. But the other reason, which is why I'm here in the first place, is because I want to understand whether I like it or not. So when I first try a wine, I always smell it, but I do so in a way that's not, I don't sit there thinking, okay, it smells like pears and apples and lemons and therefore it's this. No, I just smell it to understand what it is that it smells like without any kind of preconceived um, ideas about what it may or may not be. I just smell it. Then I taste it with the same way, with the same approach. So I just put it in my mouth and drink it. I don't decide necessarily whether or not I like it. I don't try and like guess what it is or or like nail it down and be really kind of professional about it. I just smell it and I taste it and I get my palate kind of in the game. Then I go back to it and then I smell it. And this is where I start to really understand what it is that I'm smelling. So you literally hold it up to, this sounds so basic, but hold it up to your nose and smell the wine. You breathe in and you breathe out, out of the glass, not back into the glass. That's weird. You breathe out. out (laughs) (laughs) You have a think because it's not just, so the things that you'll get on the nose are not just fruit. You're not just listing peaches and apples and lemons or whatever it is. You're also, um, you're picking up spices. So I like to think of it like cooking, right? If I had to create this wine, how would I do that? So, is there salt? Yeah. What kind of salt? Is it like briny sort of salt or is it is it flaky sea salt? Is it saxa? What is it? You know, how do I put that into there? Are there is there pepper? What kind of peppercorns are there? Um, are they roasted? Is it dry? Is it crushed? All of these things affect the flavour. So you've got fruit, you've got spice. The acid comes on your palate, so you can never comment on acid by the nose and neither can you comment on texture by the nose. Um, but you might be able to pick up oak if it's a oaked white wine or if it's a if it's a red wine. Often they have been through oak, and oak brings with it things like um, nutmeg, cardamom, vanilla pod. Um, it might be, smell toasty or resinous or or kind of um, woody. You can say woody; that would be fine. Cedary oak, whatever it is. 
So all those things, you get them on the nose. And when you put it in your mouth, they all kind of expand and become voluminous and you understand what it is that you're tasting. And here you can comment on acidity. So this might sound really complex, but really all I'm doing is trying to nail down a few key flavours. I'm trying to work out how it feels in my mouth. Is it zingy? Is it tart? Is it poppy? Is it silky? Is it slippery? Is it slinky? What are the, what are the words that kind of describe it? Uh, and then if I'm drinking, I'll swallow it. If I'm tasting, I'll spit it. But either way, the most important thing that I'm trying to get from the finish of the wine is how long it is because the key to quality is the length of flavour. So you need it to be long. You need to be able to write about it or think about it or talk about it long after you've either swallowed or spit it. And, and the length of flavour really is key to how good it is. So, so okay, so let's, that's, a, that's an interesting one. So let's talk about length on the palate, right? Yeah. So yeah. in layman's terms, um, the longer you can detect those flavours on the palate, that is an indicator of the length of the wine. Yes. And a wine can be delicious but short. So you can never say it's a great wine because it's unlikely that the quality will be great if the palate length is short. That doesn't make it not delicious. It can be delicious, but you're commenting on quality with length of flavour because all of the best wines in the world are united by a very, very long length of flavour. They are ridiculous. You drink it. I mean, you might, you might look at 12 wines in a lineup and not know the quality of any of them because it's blind, right? But you'll get to wine number seven and you'll be like, holy hell, this wine just keeps giving. It doesn't stop. It's unbelievable. And you know you're in a different league at that point. Yeah, right. You know. And 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 actually, Erin, I, I, I want to come back to this tasting because this is where mm. we're sitting today. But I just want to jump mm. back slightly. Um, around for people at home that think, and I think this is a – uh, um, this is quite prevalent in society that price is attached to quality. What do you say to that? At people at home that go, I'm not going to drink a $25 bottle, I'm only going to buy a 50 plus bottle, or someone that's going to a dinner party that goes, oh, God, like do I bring a $25 bottle or am I should, should I be taking a $60 bottle? Can I um, make a, uh, a, what is the, a comparison? between this and fashion in this sense because we think about the most expensive fashion brands in the world, you know, the, the luxury items, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, um, whatever, they are very expensive and very good quality. So you're not going to sit around saying they're not good quality, but you are going to say, wow, well, they are very expensive. You can probably find quality of that ilk for less. That's the same with wine. But it doesn't mean that Cheap wine isn't any good because at the end of the day, it's about vineyard and it's about maker. So going back to what I said at the very, very beginning about tasting a lot and widely and often and practising, you start to understand the areas that make great wine, the producers that make great wine. And so I would say that often, not always, but in the vast majority of cases, very expensive wine is very, very good. It's kind of a given. <clears throat> but you get down into the sweet spot, the middle space of like $50 to $300 a bottle, and the quality within that can, the bandwidth is not necessarily so high. I mean, it can be kind of narrow, and you can find exceptional bottles for $50, $60, $70, 80 $90 a bottle that are just unbelievable, knock your socks off, buy them by the dozen, seller them wines. 
um, that really hold their own when you put them next to wines that are three, four, five times the price. So if so you just, so so no. if you so if you tried, but how about at the at the at even like par that back even further? Have you tried like a twenty five dollar bottle that you've gone actually? I I really like that. Yeah, and what you will see in this twenty twenty two wine companion, which is coming out in August, um, is there were some wines that I looked at and I was like, holy hell, this wine is unbelievably delicious, and it goes against what we are trying to do in that I would I would give a $20 no $25 wine 95 points I was almost showing myself out I mean that's that's kind of like a naughty thing to do right but sometimes you just can't deny it it's got length of flavor the fruit is pristine it's complex and then you look at the price and you go oh my god it's 25 bucks like Come on. So do you <laughs> So do you look at the price before you drink it? Uh, well I have to because the um, <laughs> the way that we input the tasting notes means that you have to. Um, but I always at the end of the day look at the quality that I'm getting. So what I perceive from my mouth versus what I see on the price. Mm, mm, uh, mm. and it, there are some regions that just really have really fantastic quality wines and really um, not very expensive. Geograph is one of them. Geograph in Western Australia. Yeah. Lots of producers source from there, you know. They choose to buy fruit from there because it's a brilliant growing region. Yeah. But the most expensive wine in the entire region is 60 bucks, and most of them fall under 40. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's kind of unassailable value, you know. So that's way off, off topic. But, yeah, no, no, it, but- there are – there are brilliant wines to be found for $25. But I think it's interesting because I think that people want to, you know, people at home, and I've had friends that have asked me, you know, around price point and quality. So I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a pertinent question. Um, mm. But, okay, let's – we're heading back to tasting. Um, oh, good. So, <laughs> so um, I suppose the next question is uh, – so let's talk around because um, I want to talk about asses and tannins. But yeah. um, so uh, as as far as like wine vocabulary is concerned, right? Yeah. How would you suggest people start um, getting comfortable <laughs> with describing wine? Okay, um, I see each wine as a bit of a story, uh, and I don't go in there thinking, I'm going to describe this wine like this. No, I taste it first and I see what it is that it has to tell me. I go by a pretty ordered um, structure, so I always comment on fruit. I always comment on spice. I always comment on texture and I always comment on length and I do it in that order. Um, I would stick to what you know first. If that is one fruit or two fruits or three fruits and a texture, Go with that because the more that you taste and the more that you know, the more you'll be able to describe. And, you know, this very, very, very early memory of my dad, he was having a dinner party and I kind of crept out of my bedroom and sat on his lap and they were drinking some, I actually think it was a Penfolds Chardonnay, you know. Um, But he sat me on his lap and he was like, can you smell this? What, What can you smell? I would have been like seven or maybe eight. And I smelled it and I was like, thought about it for a bit. It was familiar. I was kind of rooting around in my memory for what the fruit was I was like peaches dad was like oh good for you well done you know he's so proud of me and I remember that moment of feeling really proud of myself but the truth is all I did was smell something and think about it 
don't just blurt out what it is that you think you're supposed to say. You say what it is that you taste. Do you know what I mean? There's a big difference. So is it quite because I think that people hinge on tasting notes, etc. But it's quite an objective, um, it's quite mm. a subjective thing. Sorry, right? Like that we, you know, <clears throat> parts of it are subjective because we have to, as writers, we have to paint a picture for you. So you have to get an introduction to this wine that you can understand, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to paint it so that you look at it and you go, "Oh, I think I could see myself drinking that." I like those fruits or I like the way that that sounds. I'm going to do that. But ultimately, there's no right or wrong because when you get it in your glass at home, if you don't like it, what you know is that you and I, you the drinker and me the writer, we have different palates and that's okay. But it's really it's really about kind of giving you something that you can make a judgment on because all wine writers know that we can talk to we're blue in the face. <laughs> if we want, about how great wine is. Mm. But it's a different story when people take it home and drink it with their friends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and people just, and, I, and well, you know, like even with food, right, like um, uh, people detect different flavours, like people's palates are different, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so acids and tannins, I mm. feel like, I feel like, look, acids, tannins and residual sugar are probably tossed around a bit, but like, I think yeah. that people know what tastes sweet and what doesn't. So let's focus on these two asses and tannins. How do we as um, drinkers detect these and what should we be looking for? Like how do we know that we're getting acidity and tannic wine? So um, I don't know how much of this I've already told you, but um, I, the way that I see acid is, is down the sides of your tongue. And it really pulls the saliva out of your mouth and it makes the wine salivating or quenching or kind of satiating, you know, it satisfies you. Um, acidity creates a backbone and it creates structure as well. So it's a, it's a, a vitally important part of, of wine, but it must be in balance with the fruit because if you have a very high acid wine with not a lot of fruit characters, it just tastes hard and lean and tight and unpleasant. But if the if the fruit's really kind of voluminous and rich and, and dense and then you put a tent pole of acid inside of it, it just props everything up and just makes it this refreshing and gorgeous affair. Same with tannins. So tannins are like um, like you get them in, in tea, specifically like green tea or black tea without milk, um, and they leave that kind of gritty feeling on your teeth. And tannins come from, they can come from the grape, so skins, the pips, stems all of those things create tannin or, or boost tannin in wine um, but also they can come from oak and the two feel quite different in your mouth but that takes some understanding of your own palate to differentiate them but tannins um tannins really create shape in wine and they define how it sits on your palate and how you taste it afterwards um sometimes and it took me a really long time to understand structure because I would sit through these tastings, right, with all these guys that were much more senior than I am in, in every way, shape, and form. And they'd talk about structure. And I would hear structure and I'd be like, <laughs> right, write right, that yeah. down. Throw Don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I would, I would try very hard to understand what structure was. But what the way that I would describe it now from, from months, at the beginning of tasting and not understanding what structure actually was is it's 
the shape of wine is very important. And that might sound ridiculous, but if you put it in your mouth, if you put a, a Shiraz in your mouth versus a Cabernet in your mouth versus a Nebbiolo in your mouth, those three wines have very different tannin structures and they feel different. Nebbiolo is a very fine wine, but it's very tannic. So while it's only medium bodied often, the tannins create this kind of like all-encompassing around the fruit experience. And the tannins are the thing that make Nebbiolo so sexy because it's like gripping, you know, you can't avoid it. Shiraz is really kind of plump and in the middle of your mouth and round and rolling and kind of voluminous and and, and muscular and dense. And Cabernet is, is really, um, it's kind of taut and dignified and trying to think of other words for structured because Cabernet is like the epitome of structure. It's just, it's got a, a shape to it that the, the tannins create. It's, it, I wish I could draw it for you actually because often I end up, lots of my tasting notes when, I, when I'm writing them end up having a, a little palette shape drawn on them, which you might think is totally crazy, but it helps me understand and remember more parts about the wine than um, if I wasn't to write that. So is so is 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 structure for uh, in layman's terms, um, feeling the wine in various parts of the mouth and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. it goes on both sides of your teeth. It goes on your tongue. It goes on your cheeks, and tannins accumulate. So if you're drinking only tannic wines all day and all evening, by the end, the last wine you have, even if it's less tannic than the first wine you had, sometimes it can feel like, oh, such hard work, so tannic, because they have just all built up in your mouth, you know, and that's when you get red wine teeth and <laughs> all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've all been there. And, and so, uh, so on that, right, um, for people that are trying wine um, at a vineyard, Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they are the unfortunate soul who is the designated driver. Uh-huh. So, which you never want to be. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> so, um, can you talk to us? Like, so I, I've heard people say that they get nervous about spitting wine, right? Like the whole act of it is a bit kind of grotesque. <laughs> um, yeah. Any practical advice for people who get nervous around spitting? Yeah, firstly, when I was in fashion and I watched people spit in that time when I was doing both, I was like, you people are disgusting. This is disgusting. <laughs> so awful. It's so uncouth. I don't know how you do it. But the trick to it, the way to practice is in the shower. <laughs> so fill your, fill your hands up with water, put the water in your mouth and spit at the plug hole. <laughs> oh, stop. Plug hole. Oh, my God, stop. <laughs> that is how you do it. That is how you you do it. You practice in the privacy of your own shower and until you can do it without dribbling, you shouldn't do it in public. We've all been sitting toothpaste for years. We were little. I'm sure you know how to do it, but you, you refine that practice in the shower. Oh, my God, stop. Look, That's I, my <laughs> I hope that I'm never the designated driver, so I'll never have to worry about that tip, but thank you. Actually, next Next time I see you, I'm going to check you out with your spitting and I'm going to rate you. <laughs> oh 84 God. points for spitting. <laughs> I give you a two, useless. 
Um, uh, and I'm sure we'll have to do that because we'll be seeing each other at awards season very soon. Um, so, and um, so you've touched on this earlier around um, order of tasting. Obviously, when you're professionally tasting, you are doing your reds, but that's for strategic reasons. For people yes. at home, uh, should yes. they follow a particular um, order? Yes, it's the order that we've grown up with and known as as young adults to to wherever we are now. Um, you always start with finer wines at the beginning of the dinner. So you start with either a champagne as an aperitif or a Riesling as an aperitif. It's a fantastic um, way to start in Australia, <coughs> especially with the seafood that we have here. For people that don't know what aperitif, aperitif is. sorry, the stuff you get on arrival. Hey, you're at my house. It's a party. Have a glass. Thank you. That first glass <laughs> is either sparkling or Riesling. It, sparkling for you might be pet nat. It might be um, a fancy French cider. It might be champagne. I don't know what it is, but that's where you start. Mm-hmm. And then you'd move into unoaked whites if you were doing an entire smorgasbord of, of wine. Mm-hmm. You'd do Spinny Blanc or Riesling or Pinot Grigio or whatever. You'd then move into um, oaked whites, like a Chardonnay, for example. Oh, we lost you. And you're back. And you're back on and Chardonnay. Back. And you're back on <laughs> Chardonnay. Hi. <laughs> You've got this lovely mid-ground between Chardonnay, which is an oaked white, and red wine um, where you can insert skin contact white, should you choose. Mm -hmm. Um, They are delicious and they've got more tannins that are akin to red, but they're still in the white wine space. So they're very exciting. You put them in the middle there. Um, And then you go into reds. And that's when you can start with like Pinot, Gamay, Grenache, kind of all those Nebbiolo even, all those, but not Barolo because Barolo goes at the end. But, you know, you start with all these beautiful kind of light, bright, spicy reds, and then you move into Shiraz. Then you move into Cabernet. You know, you might end in sort of Malbec or whatever it is. The other thing to take into account, so we know bubbles, whites, reds, that's pretty much accepted. Um, but we never go backwards with quality, ever. Never. Oh, never. so you're saying you should start, oh, sorry, you should end with your best quality wine. <clears throat> yes, because your palate has built up to it and everything else that tastes like rubbish. But the problem with doing that <laughs> in, in a setting at your home is you're drinking and you're more drunk and you're less able to appreciate the great wine. So that's the devil's advocate situation for you. You've what just blown my mind. Do? You've just oh. blown my mind because I would always start with the most expensive wine thinking by the time I get down, you know, a few down the run, I'm not going to know what I'm drinking. So I need to start. It's very practical. Maybe you need a short start. So you drink three exceptional wines, like a prestige cuvee champagne, a fantastic Chardonnay and a fantastic, you know, Barolo say, and then you have all your backup wines that you just drink when you're already. (laughs) It doesn't matter so much. But uh, you can never go backwards. I feel like that that's just actually a motto for life. Just never, ever look backwards. And never go backwards, you know. It's you know, right. we only go forwards. We only go forwards. Yeah. Um, so, Erin, uh, look, it has been a bloody delight talking with you today, 
And while I am incredibly jealous that you'll be drinking Grange of various vintages over the next 48 hours, I won't be. But then, you know, <laughs> nor will any of my team because of um, lockdown. So we're all stuck in Victoria. <laughs> um, but Erin will, um, when she's in Melbourne for the awards season, we will have her on the podcast again and we'll be able to have a little glass of wine in person, which will be delightful. Together. I know, right? Cute. Oh, I'll bring it. I'll <laughs> I bring can't it. wait. Um, a WA wine, of course. um so anyway guys um that was uh today's episode um uh, we're looking forward to having you back uh next week and um thank you so much for joining us erin thank you for having me i've had a great time tom